You conquered the grave. You're free every captive. It break every chain, oh God. You have done great things. We did it. All right, to write this out. Starting in verse 1, it says, David sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. Now, something I want to point out with this is David had a lot of enemies over the course of his life. Right? There was many people who went after him, many people who wanted to kill him, one of whom was even his own son. He had a lot happen in his life, and he, even though... Uh, Saul was one of those people who came after him. He makes a point of saying, and from Saul. Because even though Saul tried dozens of times to take his life, he never really considered Saul an enemy. Saul was God's king. Saul was still his father-in-law, still his king. But then it goes on. It says uh, in verse 2, he sang, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. This is David looking back. He's not just making up whatever he feels like. He's looking back and seeing who God has been. It's like this God of mine, this God of Israel, he is the one that in all the chaos... All the times he was on the run, all the times his life was threatened, all the times, all the highs, all the lows, this God of mine, he has been my rock. 
He has been my shield, my savior, my deliverer. This God, this is who he is. He's not just making things up. He's looking back on his life and saying, God, this is who you've been. This is who you have proven yourself to be. No matter the chaos, that's who God is. And this is the first uh, point for this text that I want us to focus in on. God is a rescuer and a refuge. God is our rescuer and he's a refuge. But one of the sad things about Christians is we get so focused on what we see in front of us that how often do we look to something else, anything else before him? Think about your own life. When you're in the midst of some chaos, whether it's a hardship, whether it's an illness, whatever it is, when you're in the midst of something, how often is your first response, your first instinct, I got to run to God. I got to go to God. I got to go to him. And how often is it, well, I got to go to my spouse. I got to go to my best friend. I got to someone else or something else. Some of us, it's not a person we run to. Some of us, we bury ourselves in our work, or we bury ourselves in projects, or we find a thousand things to take comfort in, to find distraction. But how many of us is our first instinct, God, you are the refuge that I run to. You're that rock. He says multiple times in the text, in this uh, psalm, that God is a rock. And the word here for rock, it's not like a pebble. It's not like a boulder even. It's like a giant cliff face, this unscalable wall of rock that God, you are something, that this is a barrier between me and the enemy. You are my protection. And how often we forfeit the peace that we could have known, the joy we could have known in the midst of any chaos, the joy of the Lord that we could have known. When instead of running to God, who is the rescuer, who is the only refuge that you will ever find, we run to so many other things. David knows who this God is. This is why he cries out to him constantly in Psalm 31, 17. It says, do not let me uh, be disgraced, O Lord, for I call out to you for help. He also says in Psalm 57, 2, cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I'm crying out to the one, the only, the God who actually can do something. Now, I understand some of you are married to some pretty impressive people. And I understand that some of you have some pretty impressive friends in your contact list. But all of them together can't accomplish a thing. God is not behind it. God is the one who prospers. God is the one who delivers. God is the one who does everything. Like, we think that we do it, right? We think we do. We think that it's up to us. We think it's up to our plans. We think it's up to our people. But here's the truth. Ask any farmer. They can do everything right. They can plant at the right time. They can weed. and har- They can do all things right. But does that mean they're going to have a great harvest? No. often are we turning to anything, everything else before God? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's wrong to go to a godly person looking for godly counsel and support. That's good. I hope and pray that every one of us has someone in our lives, hopefully more than one person in our lives that we can turn to for godly counsel, that we can turn to for support and encouragement in the Lord. We're supposed to have that. But 
we're not supposed to run to that person first. We're not supposed to run to that person as the be-all, end-all for our support. It's supposed to be, I go to God. And God surrounds me with these people, and they uplift me, and they, they bring me before the Lord. And this is amazing, but I, I go to God. In verse 4, David says, I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. He's looking back at all of these times in his life when the chaos is hitting, when the, swarm, the storm is swarming all around him. He's like, God, I, I, I always call out to you. I cry out to you because I know that you are worthy of praise. I know who you are. And sometimes I wonder, those of us gathered here week after week, do we really know who he is or have we only ever heard stories about him? Do we have our own life experience? We look back and say, God, I trusted you and here is how you've proven yourself. Or do we only have the stories of other saints in the church who are like, well, this is what God did for me. And we share other people's stories. And we share missionary stories. And we share pastor's stories. And we share friends' stories. And those are good to share. That's fine. But how many of us can say, because I have trusted in the Lord, I know what he has done. Because I've seen him work in my life, I can tell you what he has done what David is doing here. He's like, I know who this God is because I have gone to him. I've cried out to him. I've called to him. And he is the refuge. He is the rock. He is the rescuer, the salvation, the shield. He is. Do you know that for yourself? I hope and I pray that you do. And if you do not, then today would be a great time to start that direction. To start, instead of calling out to everyone around, calling out to God himself. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have friends who support you. It's not wrong to go to your spouse and look for counsel or prayer. It's not wrong at all. It is good to do so. But what I am saying is, how often do you run to God first and foremost and as the primary source of that strength that you look for, as the primary source of that counsel you need, as the primary place where when the world is chaos, when everything hits the fan, that he is the one to whom you cling. He is the one to whom you call out. Because that's what we're called to do. That's the example we see in David. We've been going through this whole series about this guy called David who was a man after God's own heart, and he was not a man after God's own heart because he was perfect. We've gone through enough of his story that we know full well he was far from perfect. But when he fell, when he tripped up, when when things got hard, when things were good, when he was angry, regardless of what was happening, he went to God. In the times when he didn't, we see him write about it in the Psalms. He's like, my bones were weak. I had no strength. He's like, it was awful go to God. Things didn't just suddenly magically get better. He was in the wilderness for years at a time. But when he did go to God, he saw there was strength. And he saw there was encouragement. He saw there was hope to move forward day by day, not because of himself, but because of the God to whom he clung. So as we go through the service, we're going to be going piece by piece through this text, and we're going to break it up with some different things in between, because kind of each portion of this text kind of hits a different, um, just kind of a different point. 
So as we're wrapping up for this time, I would like to direct your eyes uh, up. We're going to be watching a video, and as we move forward to our service, we're going to kind of intersplice different things in. But this is all meant to be a service that works together, all comes together, because everything we're doing is to help us see more and more of who this God is, this refuge is. So if you would turn your eyes up. Yeah. 
All right, so we're going to continue on uh, with 2 Samuel 22. So he spent the first part of this text talking about the amazing things about who this God is. And he goes on to more of this, but as we look on verse 5, it says, takes a turn, The waves of death overwhelmed me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me, and death laid a trap in my path. Think about what he's saying in this. The waves of death overwhelmed me. The grave is, is like throwing ropes and trying to like pull me into the grave. Think about how desperate a picture this is. Sometimes Christians have this false idea that life for Bible characters was overall pretty good. Overall, pretty easy. And we get this idea because, well, if we're honest, we're not reading our Bibles. Because if you do read your Bibles, you will see that that's actually not the case. It might seem that way from various Sunday school stories you remember as a kid. However, there's a lot of hard things that take place in the lives of the saints of Scripture. In David's life alone, there was countless times where his life was in jeopardy. In David's life, there, there was so much hardship, he more or less has like a PhD from the school of suffering. And he's talking about that here. He's like, God, there was times when I thought I was so close to death, there was times when I was like a breath away. But then verse 7, but in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry reached his ears. What an amazing thing that is. God, I I thought I was done. I thought this was over. However, I cried out, and guess what? He heard me. He actually heard me. Now, think about how amazing that really is, because who are you? Who is God? God is the star-breathing, universe-shaping creator of all things. King of all creation. And who are you? Well, I'm pretty important in my work. That's fine, but you're going to die, and then people are going to forget you and move on. I'm sorry if that's a shock. God still is, always was, And always will be. And this is the God who, when you cry out to him, if you're his child, if you have by faith put your life in his hands, this God 
hears you. But there's times when I cry out and it doesn't, it doesn't seem like he heard me. It doesn't seem like he did what I wanted. Well, there's two different things there between him hearing you and him doing what you wanted. There's two very different things. Because here's the thing. We often talk about in church of like answers to prayer. God answered my prayer. But I always find that a little dishonest when we use that expression. Because we usually use it in terms of he did what I wanted. But here's the truth. He has never not answered your prayer. He may not have given you the answer you wanted. But he's never not answered your prayer. God only has two answers to prayer. Yes or trust me on this one. God always hears and always answers our prayer. It may not be in your way, way. It may not be the will you wanted to accomplish. It may not be in the timing you desire. But God is always answering, always hearing prayer. Always. As the text goes on, he starts talking about who this amazing God is. It says, then the earth quaked and trembled in verse 8. The foundations of the heavens shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. Now think about that for a second. At this point, David's not saying that God has done anything yet. Just the anger. Just the fire inside of who God is and the earth trembles and shakes. Just the mere presence of that rage and the earth trembles and shakes. Now, some of you may have know, know what that's like, depending on how your parents were as disciplinarians. If you know their anger, maybe you trembled and shook a little bit. At his, just the emotion of who he is, the earth trembles and shakes. Now, this idea of smoke coming out of the nostrils, nostrils in this time was actually a common association with, with anger. And one of, those, one of the reasons for that is because when you... Uh, in our English Bibles, it often says things like he was slow to anger or slow to anger. The more literal translation, if you wanted, that no people knowing English would understand says, and he was long nostrilled. Seems weird, but his idea is like, right, like, like long, deep breaths, like slow to anger. So when it's not, say, it's not saying that here, it's saying smoke is coming from his nostrils. It's saying fire is coming, right? What it's talking about is God is seeing God has seen all the chaos, all the things that have come against his beloved one, all the things that have come against David, and it's stirring up anger and wrath in him. Yes, know that with God. One of the amazing things about him is that when someone comes after one of his kids, he doesn't just look at it and go, ah, well, there goes another one. It upsets him. It bothers him. And, And he wants to do something about it, and he does do something about it. And we see here with David... In verse 10, he opened up the heavens and came down. The idea of opening up the heavens is like ripping it open. Like think, think like the blinds and someone goes, rips open the heavens and comes down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet. He mounted on uh, a mighty angelic being. He flew soaring on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dense rain and clouds. Basically like, you're not going to see him coming. Like, he's coming on the clouds. That's a kind of a cool song that we sometimes sing. He's coming on the clouds. But it's like in this picture, it's like, no, 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 you're not going to see it coming. He's surrounded himself in the storm. And he is moving. And then it goes on because it takes a turn. He goes on to 
Verse 13, a great brightness shone around him. Burning coals blazed forth. So first, it's all the darkness. And then this bright light. Now, picture that for a second. Ever have that moment where you're sitting in a darker room? Maybe you're watching a movie, whatever it is, the dark room. And some silly guy comes in and just flips the lights. Have that moment? It's disorienting to go from darkness to sudden brilliance of light. God is on the move in this part of the text. And you're not going to see it coming. And then there it is, that disorienting aspect, the brilliance of who God is. The Lord thundered from the heavens, verse 14. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered his enemies. His lightning flashed and they were confused. And then at the command of the blast of his breath, the bottoms of the sea could be seen and the foundations of the earth laid bare. We don't have the technology yet. We don't have the ability as a human species to get to the depths and bottom of the ocean. What does God need to do? Just a breath. Something so simple. Just think about what that's saying about the strength and the power of this God who is on the move. That just a breath and the foundations of the earth laid bare, mountains and dirt just gone, and there's the bare foundations of the earth. All the water gone. Think about what that's saying, the picture of what that is, of the power of this God. These next few verses. This God, verse 17, he reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies. From those who had hated me and who were too strong for me. Right? They're too strong for David. But not God. If you're taking down notes, here's something to take down. Um, God's power to save is infinitely greater than the enemy's power to destroy. Okay? God's power to save is infinitely greater than the enemy's power to destroy. It doesn't matter what circumstances you find yourself in, regardless of what they are. They are not too much for our God to handle. David, looking through his life, seeing everything happen, everything unfold, he looks back, and that's one of the great things about as you get older, is that you get to look back. And you get to see the different ways that God has been moving in your life and through your life. It's one of the amazing things about walking with him year by year by year. And he looks back, and he's like, God, these enemies, it was way too much for me. But it's not for you. It never will be for you. It never could be for you. Verse 19, they attacked me in a moment when I was in distress. They kind of kick them when you're down sort of thing. But the Lord supported me. Verse 20, he led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. There is literally no circumstance, no trial, Nothing that you could face that God is not greater than. Nothing. Now, my saying that is not trying to imply that God is suddenly going to, and everything from your life is gone. Every issue, every problem is gone. It didn't happen for David. It didn't happen for Christ. It didn't happen for Peter, for Paul, for Jonah. It didn't happen for any of these people. But what did happen 
was you had a God who carried them through every step of the journey. There were times when God acted miraculously and things went away. And there were times when God let them sit in the storm, right? Because sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes God calms the child. But either way, God takes you through whatever it is. And either way, it's not stronger than who our God is. So when you find yourself in the midst of something like, I can't do it. Sometimes, loved ones, that's the point. For when we get to the end of ourselves, we're like, God, this enemy, this is too much for me. But I know it's not too much for you. You are infinitely greater, infinitely stronger, infinitely more loving, more caring, more wise than anything else. Therefore, you are infinitely more able to save, to rescue than any enemy is to destroy. But again, the question you come back to is, is he the refuge and the rescue that you turn to? Or is it something else? Guys, please remain seated as we sing this over you. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at his feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battle. Oh, where else would we go but with the Lord of The earth that bows and all the mountains. 
oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one who calms the wind and wave and makes my heart be still. Though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the seas, the nations rage, I know my God is in control. Though oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one who claims the winds and waves, awakes my heart be still. Though the earth gives way, the mountains move into the seas, the nations rage, I know my God is in control. Lord of all, who is with us through every trial, through everything. David is talking about this God, this God that he has known so well, so intimately over the course of his life. Now, some of us may be in a place where we're wondering, like, well, why am I, why is David seeing this? Where is this coming from? Where he tells us where it comes from. Take a look with me. We're going to jump down to verse 21, or pick, pick up, rather, verse 21. It says, the Lord rewarded me for doing right. He restored me because of my innocence. I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to follow evil. I have followed all his regulations. I have never abandoned his decrees. I am blameless before God. I have kept my sin, or myself from sin. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He has seen my innocence. Now, some of us hear that and we think, oh, well, that is not me. I am not innocent. I am not blameless. I am not in any way this perfect little good God follower that David apparently was, except if you've been with us, or if you just know the story of David, you know he wasn't either. He was a man for God's own heart, but he certainly had his flaws. He was a man that, well, let his anger get so carried away with him, he almost wiped out an entire household if someone hadn't intervened. He was someone that allowed his lust to get him to carry him away to the place of committing adultery, not only with a woman not his wife, but a woman someone else's wife, and then to cover everything up, the deception added on top of it. He has that, the husband of that woman uh, basically orchestrates his death. Then 
basically because of his negligence, because of his not feel, following, reading the word, the laws of God, he, through negligence, has, like someone dies. Uh, the whole carrying the ark, I reaches out and touches it, something that should have never taken place. Lots of things go on through David's life that show time and time again he's not perfect. So how can he say this? God, because of my innocence, how can he say this? He can say it the same reason why we can. See, in the Old Testament, they had a sacrificial system. We call it the Old Covenant. And in this Old Covenant, they would do these sacrifices. There's blood sacrifices. There's grain offerings. There's all these different types of things. And the boil it down, the basic root of all this was a covering over sin, a covering over guilt, and giving thanks that God is overlooking this for now. So that the sin would be carried away, the sin would be taken care of, the sin would be paid for. Now we know from Romans, excuse not Romans, from Hebrews, that that didn't just wipe out all the sin. It, didn't, it was a covering over until someone came. Uh, you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read for us Hebrews chapter 9, starting verse 12. Hebrews 9, starting verse 12, it says, With his, Jesus' own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place. Once for all time, he secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, when David was alive, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. So just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciousness, consciousness from sinful deeds that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for sin. That is why he is the one who mediates as a new covenant between God and people so that all who are, all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance that God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of their sins that they had committed under the first covenant. That was a long passage. I realize some of you may have checked out on me on that one, so let me give you a quick paraphrase on it. Old Testament, you had all the sacrifices. These were a covering over sins, a, a covering over them until such a time as Christ came. And Christ comes, and his blood pays for it all. So David, his faith is in the Messiah who would come, was in the God who is his refuge. And because of that, not because David was perfect, not because he was innocent, not because he was in every way a good little boy, but because he had a God who sees his flaws, who knows full well everything about his life, and still chooses to say, I love you enough to make a way for you. In the Old Testament, you had the sacrifices. The sacrifices were a picture, a foreshadowing of what would be when Christ came fulfilling them all and his blood cleanses everyone from sin who turns to him. So loved ones, if, if you have surrendered your life by faith to Christ, if he is the Lord that you follow, are you perfect? Well, no, you mess up. But in the eyes of God, you are blameless. Why? Because Christ has already taken care of that. 
Because God has already seen to that, and he has already removed the sin from you, putting it on Christ. At the cross, God took Christ and treated them as though he had treated Christ as though he had lived your life. And in doing so, he can take you and treat you as though you lived Christ's life. That perfect, flawless life. That sinless life. How can David say all this? He can say all this because he has a God who brings forgiveness, who brings the payment for sin, the payment that we could never accomplish, the one that we could never, the debt we could never remove, he did for us. So is David innocent because all his actions were good? Absolutely not. He is innocent and blameless because he has a God who has forgiven and removed them from him. And that is true of any person who follows Christ. Notice it's who follows Christ. I'm not saying anyone who calls himself a Christian, you can go into a McDonald's and call yourself a Big Mac, and that's not true. That's insane. So you can go to a church and call yourself a Christian, but that's not true just because you say it's so. It's true when your life is surrendered to Christ. When he is the Lord of your life, when he is the Savior to whom you cling, that is when it is true, not when your words say, I'm a Christian. You can say a lot of things. David's life was surrendered to God. Because of that, God saw him as innocent. Take a look with me, verse, excuse me, 26. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To those with integrity, you show integrity. To the pure, you show yourself pure. What an amazing thing. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. Because you rescue the humble. But your eyes watch the proud and humiliate them. To those who are humbly, God, you are my only hope. God's like, okay, I know I am. That's why Christ came. That's why the sacrifice was made, because he is our only hope. But to the one who says, I can do it myself, God's like, oh, you think you can. See how that works out for you. Why does God respond to David the way he does? It's because, and we can put this up on the Green. I meant to have it up a little bit earlier. That's my fault. Sorry. God responds to those who are blameless in his eyes. God will respond to those who are blameless in his eyes. Not those who are perfect. Not those who have never sinned. There's only one being in all of the universe who has never sinned, and that is God. That is Jesus. But to those who are blameless in his eyes. And you are blameless in his eyes. When you, by faith, have surrendered your life to him, the one who can rescue you, not just from things in this world, but from all of that's coming, all the consequences that will be for sin, the ultimate king and rescuer savior. It is through him that God can see us as blameless. Please stand and let's sing this together. to the throne of mercy where would I kneel but at this cross of grace how great the love how strong the hand that holds us beautiful so beautiful so he Jesus, 
There is a king who bore the scars of healing. There is a son who came in grace and truth. How great the love that carries us to kindness. Verse 29 says, O Lord, you are my lamp. The Lord lights up my darkness. In your strength, I can crush any army. With my God, I can scale any wall. That sounds really nice. But there's something that we need to understand about the Psalms. The Psalms, it's poetry. It's a psalm. It's not a promise. So here's what I mean by that, and why I want to bring this out. Sometimes we as Christians want to take any verse we see in the Bible and immediately, regardless of context, say, that applies to me. That's not how the Bible works. 
This is David writing about what God has done for him. And I want to bring that out because some of you may be sitting here thinking like, well, I have been faithful to God. I have been following him. And there is this thing in my life that just won't go away, this hardship that won't pass. And that happens. We don't know what it was, but Paul writes about the thorn in his flesh that he prayed, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God's like, no. For whatever reason, for whatever season, God has allowed it. So when this says, God, you took, you, you let me scale any wall, I can crush any army. Is that true? Well, it is true if that's what God's will is for you to do. It was God's will for David to do. He was king of Israel. God wanted him to defend the nation of Israel. It was God's will for David to be able to take on any army, take on any city, take on any king, and come out victorious for the sake of the people of Israel. But look throughout Scripture. Not everyone who followed after God had an earthly happy ending. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified. Jesus was crucified. Now, yes, he rose again from the dead, but guess what, loved ones? That's the amazing thing. Anyone who walks with Christ will have ultimately a happy ending because we will rise again with him one day as well. But on this earth, God does not promise that everything you go through is going to be happy. It does not promise that everything you go through will have the amazing, happy, earthly ending. It's not always going to be tied up with a bow. Sometimes cancer kills. Sometimes your job goes away. Sometimes the house gets burned down. Sometimes these things happen. And God is not promising to spare us from all the things in this life. He's never promised that. What he promises is he'll be with you through everything in this. So as David begins to talk about this God, he goes on like this for a bit. One of the things that we need to understand, the principle for us from this text, is that God, when God empowers victory, there is no enemy that can stand. Right? When God empowers victory, there is no enemy that can stand. Regardless of who the enemy is or what the enemy is, when God empowers the victory, nothing can stand in his way. But there are times... If you ever read through the chapter 11 of Hebrews, you see it talk about Abraham. You see it talk about Moses. You see it talk about all these people, David and Gideon, and all these heroes of the faith, right? It's called the Hall of Faith in a lot of churches. But then towards the end of the chapter, there's a little part of the passage that people often don't get all the way down to, or when they do, they tend to skip it over, because then it gets down to, and it says, and there are others whom God let die, be persecuted, burned, killed, beheaded. Well, that doesn't seem as nice. Well, on the earthly side, no, it's not. Sometimes the hard things come, and sometimes God allows that to come and sit or even take a life. Now, why would he do that? Why would this God who is able to do anything, this God who can empower any victory, why does he allow that? Why does he allow these hard things? There's several reasons we can talk about ultimately, that God would be glorified because, loved ones, the question for us ought to be, if we follow God, then you know that this God is good. If you followed him for any season of life, you know what this God can do. So the question for us really shouldn't be why, because the why is always the same, that God would be glorified. The question for a Christian really needs to be, okay, God, what do I do with this? How do I follow you through this? 
How do I glorify you in the midst of this? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn through this? How are you shaping me in this? Because when God allows things to happen, he's doing it for a reason. With God, it's always pain for a purpose. It's never just some arbitrary, random thing. God's just not like, today I'm going to let you break your leg. Broken! That's not God. With God, it's always pain for a purpose. He's always doing something with that. Sometimes he allows that. Here, David sees so many victories. If you look at verse 31, God is perfect. The way of God is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for for all who looked him for protection. For God... For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? God is my strong fortress. And he makes my way perfect. Jump down to verse 35. He trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my arm to draw the bronze bow. You have given me your shield of victory. Your help has made me great. And this passage talks a lot about this. We don't have time to unpack every verse right now, but it talks a lot about this. God, you've, you've given the victory, and you've given the victory, and you've given the victory. And sometimes we see that, and you're like, God, I don't see the victory. God, I don't see it. And loved ones, one of the things that we do need to understand is there are times and God lets us sit in the pain for a season. Why would he do that? Well, think about it. Those of you who are parents, do you instantly, instantly intervene every time your child is struggling? I hope not. Then they'll never grow. Then they'll never learn. Do you spare them from every possible pain? I hope not. Because then you're treating, you're making them think your savior instead of the God of their life is savior. You don't want to always intervene on every little thing with your child. You need them to go through some things. You need them to grow. Now, I understand as a parent, your heart is you don't want them to like, you know, fall off a cliff, right? You're all lying somewhere. But you let your child go through things. You don't fight every battle because they need to grow. Now, God is the perfect, ultimate parent. He knows exactly what needs to take place in your life and in my life. And there's times when he lets us go through things that we would be grown from it. Because truthfully, when we love those mountaintop moments, don't we? When we see the victory, and it's amazing. And <sighs> but what about those valleys when he brings us through? The mountaintop moments, we're encouraged, we're uplifted. But it's when we go through those valleys... That's when we understand our dependence on him. It's when we go through those valleys that we see who he is more clearly. It's when we go through those valleys and those deserts in this life that you actually begin to understand what it means that God provides a peace that passes understanding. That God provides a joy that cannot be taken out by this world. That God provides a comfort and God provides compassion. That's when you begin to understand those aspects of who God is. Now, this life, We would like everything to be happy and easy. But the truth is, loved ones, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's been corrupted by sin, that's been plagued by sin, that will always be plagued by sin until God brings things to an end. So the question for us really isn't, well, why am I going through all this stuff? You're in a fallen world. You're a sinner surrounded by sinners in a world full of sinners corrupted by sin. What do you think is going to happen? question for us is, God, how can I be faithful to you through all of these things? And the how is this, him. 
God empowered David through every victory. God will empower you. Not saying that you're going to have victory over that annoying neighbor at the racquetball tournament. But saying that God will give you victory in anything that actually matters. Like your spiritual life. Like this battle for the soul that's constantly going on. Like, well, God brings victory. God brings security. God holds you fast. God brings victory. And there's nothing that can stop that. It says in verse 41, you placed my foot on their neck, talking about his enemies, on their neck. I have destroyed all who hated me. He says, and they looked for help. The enemies of David said they looked for help, but no one came to the rescue. They even cried to the Lord, but he refused to answer them. Well, that seems crazy. These enemies cried to God, and he didn't answer them? No, he didn't. Why? He hears the cry of his children. He responds to the cry of his children. Not to the cry of those who seek to do evil or those who seek to go against his children. He is there for you and me if we are his. And as the text continues on, I'd love to go through all of this verse by verse, but I want to jump to verse 46. All these all these people are coming against him, and he says in verse 46, and they all lose their courage and come trembling from their strongholds. Satan himself trembles in the presence of God. Nothing can stand against him. Nothing. Now, I understand, again, there are times, right? There are times when we're, when we're wrestling with this, we're struggling with this. It says in Psalm 63, 1, God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in a parched and weary land. And some of us get that. It's like, God, I feel so weary searching for you. Or even in Psalm 69, Verse 3, it says, I am exhausted. David writes, I'm exhausted from crying for help. My throat is parched. My eyes are swollen with weeping, waiting for God to help me. And sometimes it's hard. David's like, my eyes are swollen. I've been crying. My throat is parched. I'm crying out so much. Same guy wrote that who wrote, God, you've given me every victory. Same guy. Because sometimes when you're in the midst of the battle, when you're in the midst of the struggle, it feels like, God, where are you? But then when God brings you through, you can look back and you're like, oh, God, you were working through all of that. You were doing good things. I don't always see it. I don't always know it. But God, I do know you've brought me through and you will continue to do so. This last couple of verses and then we'll go to this next part of our service. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings victory. 1 John 5, 4. 1 John 5, 4. For every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through faith. Not through being amazing or perfect through faith. That faith in Christ. That faith in the God who empowers every victory.
may be seated. We have just a few verses left. It says in verse 47, The Lord lives. Praise to my rock. May God, the rock of my salvation, be exalted. He is the God who pays back those who harm me. He brings down the nations under me, delivers me from my enemies. You hold me safe beyond the reach of my enemies. You save me from violent opponents. For this, O Lord, I will praise you among the nations. I will praise, sing praise to your name and give great victories to your king. You show unfailing love to your anointed, to David and all his descendants forever. If nothing else, if nothing else, when we look through our lives, when we look through the things that God has done, that ought to inspire some great praise. Because think about it, pause for a moment. Those of you who've been walking with Christ for any season of time, stop and think. What has he done? Are you in the same place spiritually now as you were last year? Or the year before? Have you seen him growing you? Have you seen him moving in this church, in your community? Have you seen him working? Where have you seen him working? He is working. Are you looking for it? Because we talk about, is this a God that we run to? And I hope it is. I hope he is. But here's the other thing. When God does move, when you see the victory, when you see him on the move, do you ever stop and give thanks and celebrate that? There should be no people on this planet that are more about the idea of celebration than Christians. Because no one on this planet has more reason to give thanks and praise and celebrate than Christians. Because we know this life isn't it. It doesn't matter the hell on earth we experience because we know this isn't it. This isn't over. That there is an eternity of victory and salvation and glory that awaits us outside of this world. So there is no one else with more reason to celebrate than those who know God. Those who know this God, who is our refuge, who is our rescuer. This God who sees us as blameless through Christ. This God who empowers every victory. This God that when he moves, no enemy can stand because he is infinitely greater, infinitely more powerful than anything that could ever exist. I want to leave us with this last verse. It says 2 Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. says, but thank God he has made us his captives and we continue and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. In other words, he is the conqueror. We follow behind him as our conqueror. And it says, now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. That's basically what David is doing in this. He's, he's coming to the end of his life and he looks at everything God has done and he writes this psalm. This actually also shows up in Psalm 18. And he writes this psalm and it's his way of telling everyone, right? We've been going to First and Second Samuel. We've been looking at David's life and it's been this account of life from someone else. But now this is David talking about his own life. And he's like, God, I've seen what you can do and you're awesome. 
and he writes this song to declare it. So that anyone who reads it, that you, when you read this, would see how awesome this God is and what he has done for David. So I want to encourage you to proclaim the same victories of Christ like 2 Corinthians 2.14 talks about, these victories of Christ, that they would be like a sweet perfume that you declare to the people that you see, hey, this is what God has done. This is what God has done in my life. I can tell you stories about what he's done with missionaries. I can tell you stories about what he's done with David, with Abraham, with Moses, and all these other people. But let me tell you also about what he's done in my life. Let me tell you about the victories I've seen God accomplish. Share that with one another. And watch how that encourages and inspires God's people. You'd be amazed at the impact you can have on someone else's spiritual walk just by sharing with them where you've been and what God has done. So please pray with me. Jesus, there is no one like you. You bring the ultimate victory that we longed to see. God, I I am so thankful that even when I am faithless, even when I am weak, and God, I, I, I don't trust, you are still faithful, and you still walk with us. God, you bring the victories. Let us run to you for them. Let us seek you out above and beyond everything else. Seek you, because you've opened the way for us to come to you. And God, when we see you move, when we see how you respond, let us celebrate. Let us give thanks to you because you are worthy of all the praise and all the honor that we could ever give. We thank you because you are worthy. In Jesus' name.